This is Red, Red Pub Pub, a podcast Red Pub Pod? from Red Hog Publications. Red Pub Pod. You need to say it now too, Greg. Red Pub, Red Pub Pod. There we go. Greetings from Red Hog Publications. My name is Patricia Thompson, and I am the project coordinator with Red Hawk here at Catawba Valley Community College. And with me today, of course, is our publisher, Robert Knipe. Hello, everyone. How are you? And we are very pleased and honored to have as our first remote guest, Greg Triggs, author with Red Hawk Publication, and his new book, which we'll be discussing, That Which Makes Us Stronger. Hello, Mr. Triggs. Hello. How are you, both of you? And we're both doing okay. Doing fine, doing fine. Good. And I have to ask you, since um, we know that you live in two different places within the state of New York, where are you right now? Um, I am in Narrowsburg, New York, which is where we have a small house in a town of about 400 people that is actually part of a larger town that's part of 1,600 people. It's right on the shores of the Delaware River on the border between Pennsylvania and New York. So I look out over the river to Pennsylvania. Oh, lovely. It is so beautiful. Stupid lucky that we ended up here. So fortunate. And, you know, when you are living in the city, you're not very far from the river that overlooks God's country, New Jersey. That's very true. I also have a place in Harlem, New York, with my husband, Matt. Uh, That's where he is right now. He's a college professor. All right. Well, thank you. Um, We're, just to point out, one of the reasons why we're so honored to speak with you uh, about this new book, Greg, you were our first novel. You know, we we had a lot of learning to, to do and prompted by you. Uh, we're so fortunate that you gave us a chance to let us do your book. Oh, and, thank you so much. That's so kind. I feel the same. Yeah, it was from a publishing standpoint, um, you kind of upped our game. And we we welcomed it. Um, we want to thank you for that. You put us into a different level of what we can offer other people. So, again, we, we do want to thank you for that and your patience. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you for your patience. Oh, you know, I, I, I think the best art comes out of patience, right? A more fully considered, rounded project. That's true. I just, I like the collaboration aspect of it. And when everyone is patient, that means the collaboration is anxiety-free and much more easy to flow. Well, and, you know, one of the things I've loved about my career is I feel as though as a performer or as a show director or as a writer that it's so easy to get caught up in your own point of view. And that that can be awesome, but it can also be very limiting. And if you aren't open to other people's points of view, odds are you are not going to grow as quickly or as well as if your ideas or perceptions are confronted or challenged, or if you find yourself thinking, oh my goodness, they have a better idea. I've got to, I've got to ponder that, mm-hmm. right? And as a, you know, a lot of art is time spent pondering. Yep, yeah. and it is so freeing to be able to shrug off those preconceptions and, and, and embrace those new ways of perceiving other people's art and using it to build your own up. And also just, you know, so much of what we are as artists were developed when we were students. And 
I can't think of any way I am or would want to be who I was when I was 18 to 22 years old. Those were those were awesome years, but except for being right-handed, I think I've, you know, pretty much completely changed and <laughs> better for it. And, and you know what? I want to take an opportunity to read a very brief bio on you, Greg. We, we're jumping right in, and I'm thrilled about doing it. That said, your background lends a lot to part of what's in this book. And the fact is, Greg has been an improvised, improvisational um, performer for, for many years, in addition to being with the current Broadway's next hit musical. He performs with them. He is also the chief creative officer for Strategic Entertainment NYC, and you can go to that website. And he's had many illustrious clients, including the Tribeca Film Festival, Slack, as well as Disney. And as you mentioned, uh, your husband, Matt, and you living both in Narrowsburg as well as in Harlem. I want to go back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, the collaborative part of art. And one of the things I've learned from improv and to be transparent, I know Greg through his improv background for, for many years, the important part of saying yes and. And you hear people say it and you don't quite know what it means, but working with creatives from our standpoint as a publisher, one of the joys of working with you was we never thought of no. You know, We're creative enough and we want to stretch ourselves. So anytime you mention something we hadn't thought of or done before, we would say to ourselves, yeah. You know, I think one of our strengths is we don't like to say no. We would prefer to say yes. And that journey with you through this novel has helped us explore and learn and grow. So, again, just kind of getting back to that collaborative process that arts, artists go through, we appreciate that and value it. Well, it's one of, one of the most important things I've learned that I try to bring to writing because uh, that which makes us stronger is my second novel. But our mutual friend, Patty, uh, from one of my, the improv companies with which I perform, Budge Threlkeld, he was uh, experiencing bad health while I was writing my first novel. So we just arranged to have phone dates once a week when I was walking through New York and he'd ask how the book was going. And Budge was, before Budge was anything else, he was a storyteller. And there were a couple of times I was struggling with where I wanted that first novel to go. And I remember Budge saying, you're getting in the way of the story. If you just shut the F up, because Budge's language was rather colorful, but if you just shut up, the story will tell you where it wants to go. And boy, was he right you know, there were there were so many times when I was in front of my computer because that which makes us stronger was written during the pandemic. And I'd have this flash of where the story was telling me to go. And not only did it feel right, it felt like an awesome surprise. Like it felt as though it were Christmas morning and someone had just handed me this thing that I just saw radiate into the rest of the story. And you know, I'm not without ego. I like to think that that's reflected in the experience of reading the novel. But boy, was that just a wonderful experience that I would not have had had I not been doing what I'd done before I started writing novels. Mm. And that makes perfect sense. And um, you mentioning writing during COVID, are you saying this kind of started? 
during COVID or had, had you had the seeds planted prior to and COVID gave I, you just the perfect opportunity to, to start it and finish it? I started That Which Makes Us Stronger in February of 2020. Wow. And I was on a ship doing a transatlantic crossing and I was working for a wonderful client, Royal Caribbean Cruise Line. And in between rehearsals, I was, I felt like I was twiddling my thumbs. And this story had always been in the back of my head. It started as a short story called What is Art? Which was meant to be uh, an homage to my brother Art, which I also think that which makes us stronger is. But I had started writing it in between rehearsals just to feel productive and like I was working on something that was my own. And then the world shut down and I just thought, well, when am I going to have more time or room in my head or need the distraction more? I'm just going to say by the end of this, this novel is going to be in shape, right? Because who knew that the pandemic was going to last as long as it did? I remember one of my friends told me she was going to stay home for two weeks and not leave uh, her house. And I thought, that's crazy. And boy, were we both proven wrong. So yes, I did finish That Which Makes Us Stronger a couple of months after vaccinations began. Okay. Um, and here we've published it like a couple of months after we all get our second boosters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, Robert, I like to think that my novel is a booster for people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is a booster. I can feed you straight lines all day long, Greg. Um, that which makes us stronger available through the author or at our website, redhogpublications.com. Um I noticed in the acknowledgement you mentioned that 70% is autobiographical and 30% is fictional. Um, out of curiosity, since it does rely so heavily on your family, what has been their take on it? As far as I know, only one of my siblings and one of my nieces has had time to read the book since it came out toward the end of March. And my sister was amazingly supportive. And my niece is the daughter of my brother, Art. And she wrote me the most beautiful letter about the dynamics of our family and how she looks back on it and what she has learned and how she tries to apply it. And she also wrote lovely things about both my parents, which meant the world to me. Um, and I, you know, it's so easy, right? Like every review I can find online, each one of them is precious to me. Each book that is sold or that I get to autograph is precious to me. But I thought, I found myself thinking after I got that letter from my niece that, you know, if that is the best outcome of having written this book, that alone makes it worth it. Now, do I... Everyone listening to this, do I want you to buy 10 copies and give them away for Christmas? Absolutely. Do I want the book to be in as many hands as possible? Yes. Robert did me the favor of saying that he thought that this was a long seller, meaning that it wasn't going to have one spike and be done. 
And I've really tried to live with that thought and think, how do I best play the long game to get this book into as many hands as possible, especially now that it's available as an ebook and as a printed book. And so my family's reaction is... Well, one of the reasons it is not completely autobiographical is, number one, I'm not sure I'm interested, interesting enough to, to justify something that is directly about my life. And number two, this is my version and my reflections of things that happen to many people. And therefore, to not take anything away from my brothers and sisters, my nieces and nephews, my cousins, anyone, anyone who was in that era of my life, it felt like throwing a little fiction onto the broad strokes of it would, number one, allow me to take the story places that were perhaps less painful or, or less micro, you know, just, just tight. Uh, it opened up the story more. And then I thought, and it's probably going to be easier for others to read. So, you know, the first part of the book is uh, a character named Warren Barnes' childhood. And it follows him from about the age of five to seven and a half while his parents are dealing with addiction and divorce. And one of his, his siblings is blind and another one is diagnosed as mentally challenged. And the bigger world is affecting his world in that, you know, there are things about racism and the Vietnam War. It's, you know, set in the early 70s in that portion of the book. And to that is the that is the foundation of the whole book. And I find that that's the section that is truest to my life. Probably the first section, the third section, and then the second section because I I tried to make it more um, engaging to my high school years because I just didn't want to think about what was sometimes a rough time in my life. And I found my siblings and my family that have taken the time to read the book to be very open to those changes. And so I'm thankful that I approached it that way. And, you know, other people have written memoirs and had their veracity challenged by people who shared those experiences with them. And I thought, let's just throw a little fiction in there so I can say, this was my version of it, or the story went elsewhere. Smart. I, I like the way you put that. And, and may it forever be vague for people who want to look into it more than it actually is. So that was smart. Well, and you know, for my niece, my father, my father loved his family, but there were issues with his parenting because of his addictions. But I don't know how my father could have been a better grandpa. And so for my niece, I don't want I don't want her to feel like I'm trying to take away her memories of her grandpa. And I want to give it to my dad. He was an amazing grandpa. Now, could he have gotten there a little sooner? Maybe when he was a dad. Yeah. But um, that's the way it worked out. And I'm thankful for having seen him rise to the challenge of our family. Wish it had been sooner, but it wasn't. And that is mine to deal with yeah and and I will say I went through a journey with your dad you know uh, when you first read it 
I had some issues with him, and I, I didn't necessarily like him, but there was a point where he just grew on me, and I adored him, flaws and all, warts and all. You know what I mean? So you did a wonderful job of bringing humanity to people who have addictions, and they're in our families, you know? Well, and, you know, my first book was in large part about a divorce, and I don't like sloppy writing about divorces where one person is vilified and the other person is a saint, because that's not always the case. It's just two people who shouldn't be together for the rest of their lives. And and in this book, one of the themes being addiction, I find very often in writing that the addict is defined by their addiction. And no one is defined by one thing, right? Uh, President Obama was a son and a father and a husband and the president of the United States. And my father was an alcoholic who also happened to be chronically addicted to cigarettes and gambling. But he was also generous and he had a wonderful sense of humor and he was mischievous, you know. And I think even in his addictions in the book, that that sense of mischievousness comes through. And when I was writing the book, as I said before, I was really thinking of it, and I still think of it as being in honor of my brother Art, uh, to whom the book is in part dedicated. And boy, did my father refuse not to be an important character in the book. And um, so... That's one of the other things that's wonderful about writing something like this is the formula or the ratios or the memories. Different things come back than what you've been focusing on while you've been healing from it. And whenever we talk about the book, which I enjoy talking about, um, I, I always have to remind myself that the book is funny before it is anything else, I think. You know, it, it even says a funny novel about serious things. And when you talk about the themes and the fact that there are special needs characters and a closeted character and addicted characters and divorce and death, the book is still funny, in my biased opinion. And so please don't let the heavy things we're talking about discourage you. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As a matter of fact... um, I read the last third this morning simply because the first two-thirds of the book I had read prior to it being finalized. In a way, I'm kind of glad that I got to read the last third today because I know things had changed a little bit, you know, during the edit process. It's very strong. Um, And I have to ask you about the humor, as well as Tim Peeler, who was your senior editor, who was such a champion of this book, by the way. And Aurora, who was lovely. Yeah, the two of them have have been amazing. You gave them a bright spot because this was something they enjoyed doing. It was our first novel, so we all learned from it. And thank goodness that you're such a strong writer and very humorous. So this question from Tim, um, where does that humor come from as you write a book? And I ask that because did you write it and then come back and punch it up? Or is this just your innate, you know? your natural humor coming out through the time you started it? Um, When I was a kid, life was really heavy. And I remember so clearly looking at kids who had more traditional families or less things to deal with 
and getting so discouraged. And I don't know where it came from, but like at seven years old, I thought, well, if I keep comparing myself to other people, I'm, I'm not going to get through this intact. You know, it's just, we all are dealt the hand we're dealt as children and you grow from there, right? You, you, and, and the other thing about the dedication in the book is I dedicate it to my brother, Art, my sister, Emily, and our grandmother. And then at the end of the dedication, I say, make the world a better place, make a child believe in the potential of their future. And boy, did the three of them do that for me. My grandma used to tuck me into bed every night saying, you have it in you to be whatever you want to be. Don't worry about what the rest of us think. Think about what you want to be and set out to be it. And what great advice. And I think my sense of humor came from the get engaged in the potential of things, not the limitations. And I used to say, and it's probably a little too pat, but if you're not going to cry, you better laugh, right? And then I ended up getting an undergrad in directing. And I understood that no one was going to let a 22-year-old support himself by being a director <laughs> of full productions in, in theater, in corporate theater, theme parks, whatever. It just wasn't going to happen. But people had always responded to my sense of humor. So I started taking improvisational classes. And that became the foundation of my career until I was of an age and experience that people were more open to me becoming a show director. And now I I have a wonderful balance of directing, writing, and still performing on occasion. And it's all thanks to my sense of humor, I think, and curiosity. You know, I very often a younger cast will ask, what is the key to success? Or I find myself pondering, what is the the key to aging as well as possible. And I keep reminding myself, you have to protect your curiosity Mm. because the minute you stop being curious, it's much harder to grow. You know, it's, it's like a plant trying to grow through a sidewalk, right? It's just, it's going to be a lot more effort because you're not in flexible soil. So um, my sense of humor the other thing about it that I like is through improvisation, right? Audiences tell me they don't see me for who I was when I learned to improvise 30 some years ago. They see me for who I am now. The ideas they engage in or the things they respond to are based on who I am now. And so your sense of humor evolves and grows, hopefully. And I think we can all think of a performer who did not grow or adapt as they changed, right? They're, str- they're trying to do what they were doing 30 years ago, and God knows the world is a vastly different place. Mm. But one of the things that's cool about a sense of humor applied to different disciplines, one of the things I love about writing books is sometimes the joke is enhanced by how it looks on the page. Or I know, I know Robert, you had a lot of thoughts on how I broke up paragraphs. Mm -hmm. But that was to set up new energy or to create more of a pondering of the last line or impact for for the next line. And I thought sometimes that that really helped pay off the humor and make the the tone more conversational instead of studied. Yeah, absolutely. There's a um, there's an example of that in the book on page 49. 
Uh, one of the things I've loved about this group book, Greg, is, is, is how it resonates with, with me as a reader and resonates with other people because you use a lot of pop culture references. Uh, your humor is sometimes uh, uh, leveled in the humor of discomfort. You know, this kind of, uh, it, it, it kind of bounces on sarcasm and discomfort. And on page 49 in the book, there's a there's a section in here where you talk about uh, you were small enough that they took you to a Ben Franklin store to choose a Halloween costume, and you could not uh, choose a particular costume, and you couldn't make up your mind, and your mom kept pushing you and pushing you and pushing you. And the way this is written and broken up into single lines and things like that is just brilliant because it puts you in that aura of discomfort that this child is feeling. Because I felt that when I was a kid and went through the same thing. Do I want to be Dracula? Do I want to be Batman? Uh, going to the models where the monsters were, the model monsters, do I want to get Dracula this time or do I want to get uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon? Oh, I can't decide. And my mother is just going like, look, make up your mind or, or take nothing. You know, and you know you don't want nothing. So can you, can we, you comment we, on we that? Grew up in an, we grew up in an era of horrible Halloween costumes. Yes. Remember, they would yes. just you would just you would just step into like a nursing home robe of shiny <laughs> nylon fabric that had been stamped and a mask that didn't even allow your face to move and that was supposed to be your big Halloween. Or breathe. And, Oh, or what? Breathing, or breathe. Breathing couldn't was breathe yes, with those little plastic breathe. holes. It was horrible. Yeah. yeah, and it would it would like your your young little lips would have a sharp edge that it would pop up against. They were horrible. And not help you if you wore glasses. Yes. <laughs> and which I did. And I loved thinking about that, but still having the wonder of a child, because while I was not thrilled with my options, nor did I know the world was going to go on to costume children better than we did, right? So it, it oh, was man. what it was. And there's another part of that section that I like in that then eventually Warren, the main character, gets sent to a hand-me-down costume swap from yes. a neighbor, which is important because the family doesn't have much money. And there's the discomfort. <laughs> but the thing that I loved about that, and again, the story just told me where to go, was when he was kind of complaining about all these 1950s reject costumes. He said, you know, I'm surprised that there wasn't a Senator Joe McCarthy costume in the box. <laughs> because Joe McCarthy, who did nothing as far as I've ever learned to make the world a better place, was the congressman from Wisconsin where the book is set. And... I loved going back to eras like that or mm -hmm. Vietnam to kind of remind the reader that the country was polarized at those times as well. Yes. And somehow we pulled our way out of it and that hopefully we will be able to do that again because there's I, – I would not respect anyone who tried to convince me that the world is not a polarized place right now, right? Mm. And I kept thinking, okay, so here's this kid mired in all of this crap who's going to hopefully go on to a much happier life, and I think he does. But, you know, my mom always used to say, this too shall pass. So where we are now is not where we will be forever, nor was it during the Vietnam War, nor the Cold War. You know, the world pulls itself up, and it's better for a while, and then sure as hell, another problem finds us. And we all think we've been, we're, this is the first time we've ever been here. Well, maybe it's not. 
We've had a plague before. We've had an epidemic, pandemic. We've been yep. at we've been at world war before. Yeah. And you know, even one of the other wonderful things about the book is my uncle Greg, for whom I'm named in real life, my uncle Gregory Triggs was according to our family research and what I've read, the first soldier from Wisconsin to die in the uh, the Korean War. Mm. And so that happens to Warren's uncle, and they never meet. But, gosh, what an honor to be able to write about an uncle that I never got to meet who made such a sacrifice of distinction and then to write about my grandmother's reaction to it. In the book, Warren's grandmother goes to every service funeral she can go to in her community. And that's what my grandma did. She just quietly went for every fallen soldier from Wisconsin from the day her son died until she died. And, you know, there there are so many quiet lives in the world that make incredible contributions that probably go unnoticed in the bigger picture. And I love that this book gave me an opportunity to celebrate some of those kinds of contributions from the people I love. That's one of the things that makes a novel like yours uh, literature is it takes and highlights those quiet lives, like you say, and tells their stories. And we as readers can identify with that and realize that our, our, our own lives are those quiet lives that make a distinction and a difference to those around us and in those waves change the world. And one of the things about the process of working with Red Hawk that I really appreciated is, you know, and this was not completely professional of me, but I handed you a final version and then I cut about 5,000 more words after we had said that we're in the zone for the final version. But I think what I did was, number one, I think I cut out a lot of overwritten parts or unnecessary parts or overly descriptive parts where I didn't let the audience draw their own conclusion. And then there were just a couple of points that felt important while they were being written, but boy, they were just plot driven Mm -hmm. and just kind of shoehorned in there. And what, what a treat and an honor to serve the story by getting rid of them. It's a very mature thing for a writer to do. And to realize. So it's it's not a lot of writers that can be that mature and do that. Well, thank you. Um, I owe a lot of that to a, a, a teacher I had named Christine Decker, mm. who the first time I ever wrote a sketch comedy show, we w- the team that was putting it together took her out for brunch to get their notes. And she just handed us this pile of pages with with red lines through it. And she said, don't hate me. This is my job in the process, but this is what I would cut. And she was, she was dead on. And part of me thought, gosh, how far could we, how much further could we get if I had had that awareness before I gave it to her? She really would have been able to polish this. And so that kind of became part of my ethic. And then there are times when you're asked to cut something and you just can't Mm. because you know it's important to how you see the story. And 
Aurora was a godsend because she just has strengths and talents that I do not have. You know, she knows she knows the difference between further and farther. And I'm more invested in writing the story. So I don't I don't want to worry about that stuff because it's going to slow me down from the momentum of my idea, right? Which I'm sure can be a bit frustrating to edit. But one of the characters that she thought there was a character that could be cut. And I understood why she felt that way. But to me, that character, everyone else stays with the family and fights. And the character that Aurora thought could be cut was the one that chose flight and went away. And within the vacuum that creates, I knew I would eventually get to that character and that the story would tell me when to. But what I realized is Aurora, number one, had every right to present that idea. And number two, as it was written at that point, I could understand why she felt that way. I had not made that theme clear enough. So within her criticism or pushback of that character, I had to go back and make that a little clearer. I had to strengthen the reason she was there. And I'm very thankful that that challenge was introduced, but I'm also thankful that I had the mettle to say no but to learn from it in a way that hopefully improves the story. And for you, uh, potential and practicing writers out there, that'll be $25 for that writing lesson that Greg just gave us. (laughs) I got it for free. (laughs) Well, I will say, um, both Tim and Aurora had specific questions they wanted to ask you, and and I already alluded to Tim's. Aurora's question was interesting. Um, The writer writes... The reader reads, and that's a big, big mission for us here at Red Hawk. We make sure our authors know it's fine for you to write, but please take into consideration someone needs to read it. And so she wanted to know, what did you want to be the takeaway from your readers? A couple things. Um, In the broader picture, we are all remembered by... This sounds cornier than my tone maybe normally is, but we're all kind of left by the footprints we leave, right? And did you leave footprints on the forehead of a person walking all over them and trying to crush their spirit, or did you leave your footprints on their heart, right? Mm -hmm. And my grandmother, for example, she grew up on a Christmas tree farm in Montello, Wisconsin, to from with immigrant parents. She was she was not a fully, you know, educated woman. She had to leave as more babies came, she had to take care of the younger ones. And then she married my grandpa, who was an immigrant. And again, she had one of those quiet lives. But to bring her back, she's still affecting the world. You know, the fact that she is a character in this book is bringing her back to affect others because she mattered to me and our family, right? So that was one of the goals of the book. And then I think the other thing is with my father as an addict and the character that passes away in the book, uh, another character, a different character than my father, uh, my mentally challenged brother, uh, my blind sister, Uh, the eccentric people that come through the book. Um, 
people can be defined by their limitations or they can be defined by that which they do to make the world a better place. And I like to think that all of those characters, not because I wrote it, but because that's where the story went, I like to think all of those characters who would so easily be dismissed for limitations are actually to the reader about their actions and who they are and how they affect the world. And, you know, as growing up with those issues, right? Um, You feel so trapped. And now, all these years later, part of me is actually just grateful for having gone through it. Uh, Sometimes I think, okay, I got a lot of crap out of the way in the first 23 years of my life. Um, And it's... It's nice to reflect back on them with generosity and appreciation. Makes us stronger, huh? <laughs> yeah, and you know, even the title, right? Mm-hmm. That which makes us stronger. I I think it's a scrappy title, and um, I was shocked when because I I pondered this title. Oh boy, it, the title was harder than writing the book, and. So I went on, you know, I went, I just Googled. I was like, surely there was a book called That Which Makes Us Stronger. And there wasn't. And I was so delighted. And my first book, The Next Happiest Place on Earth, I had the same experience. I thought, oh my gosh, surely there's going to be a book. And there wasn't. And then I thought, oh my gosh, there's going to have to be Disney copyrights with that. And there weren't. And Again, as my friend Budge told me a million years ago, the story tells you where it wants to go. And then, after I landed on the title, That Which Makes Us Stronger, and vetted it with my publishers, (laughs) I did not realize how many times strength is alluded to in the book. Mm -hmm. After the title came out, I only had to add it one more time. And it was a theme that I had not even noticed, embarrassingly. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I've always told students that their title to their essay or their whatever they're writing is somewhere buried in their text, and it will rise up, you know, usually at the end through the thematic, you know, osmosis that that, that kind of thing happens. So. Mm-hmm. But I, I do remember you uh, workshopping it, so to speak, and I know that corn was the initial one, and and I could see where corn could have been there, true, truly. Um, but I think the, that which makes us stronger is definitely a stronger title. So good for you well, on landing on it. The title corn, right? I don't think that was going to make anyone pick up the book. And I, I think that it sounded like an agricultural book, right? <laughs> and so my husband, Matt, just... Every night at dinner, whatever we had corny beat, you know, there is a better title in your book. This, this, this corn on my fork, this is not the title. Um, And the corn is reflected on the book cover. Uh, And I love my book cover. But I kept thinking, okay, I'm thinking about this. So clearly he's got a point. And then I started saying, no matter how much I like the allusion to corn within the story, would I pick up a book called Brussels sprout or onion <laughs> after some other garden crop? And I absolutely would not. And I thought, so, yeah, it's probably not the best title, but it's such 
an important story about who my brother Art was as a boy because his father died and he was very worried about taking care of my sister and my mom. And so when he was seven years old, he, he uh, saved up his money and he bought these little corn seeds and he just scattered them like Johnny Appleseed, but with corn seeds around my mother's front yard. <laughs> and um, one day my mom and my grandma came home and they're like, what, what are those plants popping up all over the front yard? And Art ran out and said, corn, I planted corn. We're, we're going to have plenty of food. We don't have to worry that dad's not here. I, I got us corn, which was his favorite vegetable. <laughs> and, and my mom, it kind of tells the story of my mom and also the mom in the book that she, her first husband was a yard, a yard fanatic. You know, it was, it was manicured. But my mom was like, I have a son who cared enough to do that for us. We're going to, damn it, we're going to have front yard corn all summer long. And so she just made it a game for the kids and her mom who'd worked at a, you know, who had grown up on a farm. They just spent the summer tending to the yarn, the corn that was just randomly popping up around their yard. And that, that is the way to live your life. The love that my brother was showing at that moment deserved to be honored more than who gives a damn what the neighbors think. I have a seven-year-old boy without a father rising to the challenge of our circumstances. And within all that, I just, I find great inspiration in that. And so on the cover of the book, uh, my friend Robert Z. Grant, who is very talented, created a a duality and the bottom of the book cover is an upside down house which i think is obviously a perfect a perfect visual allusion to the chaos of growing up in a house that's largely dysfunctional and then through the house there is a stalk of corn growing toward the sun and then the whole thing is inside a bottle and i just think it's a, a beautiful visualization of the story. Indeed, indeed, Greg. Um, I know we're running a little bit out of time, but I did want to surprise you a little bit. We did get in touch with some of your fans, folks that have read your book, and they had questions for you, too. Oh, how thoughtful. Um, I'm going to give you a real softball question. Lisa Brown from Kissimmee, Florida, um, she asks, is there anything you can't do really well, Greg? <laughs> and we love Lisa. <laughs> you you would not want me on your football team. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Lisa, I hope you heard that one. Um, Nancy Witter from Wilmington, North Carolina asks. Oh, gosh, well, lovely Nancy Witter, who is also a writer that you would do well to consider someday. Put a little note by that one. Um, she says, I absolutely loved the book. It reminded me of growing up in the 60s. It made me laugh. It made me cry. I would like to know if you were going to write another book and continue the story of Warren. And were you really Mr. Skyway? Thank <laughs> you, Greg. And more, please, sir. Um, I would, I, my goal, my goal when I've, a pub, I've published both the books that I've published um, is for it to inspire another book, for, for me to leave feeling like people would give a damn that I've, I've written a third book. 
I would love... Uh, at first, I thought my third book would be a sequel to my first book. And now I think I want to stay with Warren and his world. Um, I would like to... I would like to write about Warren finishing his education and who he goes on to be after uh, the death that uh, kind of defines the last third of the book. I think it would be very interesting for the readers that are invested enough to know that that character passes away, but then is in the, in the next book. I think that could be very bittersweet and a, uh, a lovely consequence of memory moment for the reader. Um, so yes, I would like to write another book and I would like it to be about Warren um, and his family. And I'd like to develop some of his friends more because I knew there were, there are so many characters in this book. Mm-hmm. That there, there were characters that I just couldn't develop. And it kind of broke my heart a little bit because I, I believe in the potential of those characters. So I would like to go back and uh, revisit that. And yes, I was actually Mr. Skyway in Minneapolis in the mid-1980s. I need to see those pictures. <laughs> they, um, the, the publication for which I was Mr. Skyway is no longer uh, publishing. But yeah, it was my job to go around the Skyway and take pictures. Mr. Skyway eating a blueberry muffin at McGlynn's Bakery. Mr. Skyway picking up a pair of socks at Socks Appeal. It wasn't a full-time job, but it was a thing that, and then they would always talk about what I was doing next. Greg Triggs is an actor appearing at the Minnesota Shakespeare Company. Greg Triggs is an improvisational comedian appearing at the Brave New Workshop. Things like that. So, yes, I was. That's great. Um, Robert, do you have any final questions or thoughts that you'd like to present to Mr. Triggs? No, I just want to go back and reread the book and experience all that terrific stuff again. Because, again, a story that resonates with a person and you can see yourself or see aspects of your own life in it is always worth worth reading. And uh, it makes it's the difference between literature and, and, and pop culture. So uh, just I appreciate Greg letting us have the honor of publishing it. Well, thank you. It would not be it would not be the book it is in every sense of the word were it not for Red Hawk and everyone who helped bring it to the finish line. Uh so the two of you certainly Richard, Tim, Aurora, Lisa. A shout out to Lisa Iverson who uh I I am blessed with friends that help make things happen and I am thankful. It's our village. Thank you for being a part of it and being a part of our stable here at Red Hawk Publications. <laughs> thank you. All righty. Thank you. Uh, we want to thank Greg once again, my colleague, Robert Knipe, and, of course, our engineer for the day, Richard Eller. This has just been another uh, edition of Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. You need to say it now, too, Greg. Red Pub, Red Pub Pod. There we go. All right, guys. Have a great day and evening. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Red Pub Pod. You need to say it now, too, Greg. Red Pub Pub Pod. There we go. Join us again for... Red Pub Pod? Red Pub Pub. A podcast. Red Pub Pod? From Red Hawk Publications.